0: All right. Hey, we are back. It is mid-March. March March Madness is about to kick off this week. Uh, My madness started last week. I actually took the first major step after a year of being with my family. I went out to lunch with somebody other than my wife or daughter in person outside uh, at Manhattan Beach. So got to say it was... Does your wife know about that? Yes. (laughs) Shh. Shh. Can't tell her that yet um maybe I shouldn't have said anything you're listening to no u-turn a podcast about the exciting changes in transportation and the technology that is playing a key role in leading us into the future there will be some detours along the way but there's no turning back and now to your hosts basil yap chris fernando and robbie singh So it was great, actually is uh it was kind of like freedom a little bit, but I'm not gonna lie a little skittish at first uh scary to kind of see people and sit at a table near other people. but everybody follow the rules: masks on, take your mask off when you're eating, you know, keep it clean and uh yeah, definitely no freakouts until I got into the car and wiped my hands and my face and
1: <laughs> everything else <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so you're you're the anomaly in LA because LA and California has not been in the news on the on the good column for COVID behavior.
0: Yeah, it's uh, once people start hearing there's loosening of the restrictions, uh, they basically translate that into it's time to party, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I, <clears throat> people are just so pent up
2: that they want to get out any any reason they have to get out and and
0: enjoy the weather and. and <laughs> enjoy visiting other people. So was this a business meeting? Yeah, I actually was with a friend of mine from the industry. So it was good. Got to talk about business and, you know, catch back up in person. So it felt, it felt pretty good. It was a sign of some sense of normalcy. So we're still, I think, far away from that day of what we used to know. But um, I just want my shot. Just give me my shot. I think I have to wait a little bit longer for that one. But uh, I heard you were, um, you guys were, or Basil, you were taking some shots this weekend, right? (laughs) Yeah, I got, I got lucky. I volunteered
2: at a um, a clinic, uh, a big uh, clinic they had here in the city, Winston-Salem. And, um, and at the end of it, they had some shots left over because of the, um, you know, the expiration shelf life they had to administer them. So some volunteers that hadn't been, hadn't got their shot yet were able to get them. So got the one J and J one time shot. But that whole I will to say the logistics for that whole operation, they probably vaccinated about three to four thousand people, I think, that day. And it was just it was amazing. I mean, they had everything worked out from the flow of people in. They in this particular place they got out of their cars and um and then came in. They had all the chairs spaced out. People sat down in the chair. They, you know, Scan their um their record gave them a shot they waited 15 minutes and they are out so i mean they're turning people over and getting people in and out pretty quickly so that was pretty i was fortunate i'm glad to have it to to that'll just help me uh traveling in the future but um
1: so so sounds like my dogs are celebrating your shot as well with <laughs> the background here but uh yeah hey north carolina is uh doing good things with the rollout because i'm I'm scheduled to get my first dose tomorrow so um i won't get the j and j but i'm not sure which one i'm going to get i'm assuming it's one of the two uh, two shot doses but I'm, i'm pretty excited uh about about that tomorrow so um yeah nice first in flight First shots, come on, LA. Come on, Hollywood. Yeah, well, hey, you know, I'm probably
0: going to get some shots tonight, but <laughs> something different. it may or may not help with COVID. <laughs> It'll just make me a little sleepy. It's all good. <laughs> well, but, there, uh, yeah.
2: you know, I was telling um, my wife today, I think Hamilton is missing an opportunity with the song from the musical Hamilton, Not Going to Miss My Shot. They need to be like a whole PR campaign with those guys about getting their first shot.
1: Drop the meme. Drop that meme, Basil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. The meme factory. Well, I guess the logistics discussion and getting shots is all appropriate uh, as we we introduce our guest uh, for this episode. But uh, I think we have some news to uh, talk through before we get to our guest.
0: Yeah, I'm seeing a lot with... uh, quite a few stories around the medical drone delivery market, you know. uh, Wait,
1: are you delivering drones or? Oh, yeah.
0: Thank you. Always mix that up. Drone medical delivery. There you go. God, always correcting me. I appreciate it, Chris. But yeah, that market, I mean, I'm looking at numbers. Some of the numbers are throwing out there, you know, up to a billion dollars by 2027, maybe even sooner. And, you know, that's... Pretty amazing. So I started doing some research and looking back. Yeah, there is a, quite a bit of real activity happening, you know, across the world. And speaking of, uh, you know, drone medical deliveries, I mean, Basil, you, you've had experience with that firsthand. With
1: another your first, another yeah. first.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: we've been fortunate
2: um, in in North Carolina have, uh, um, well, some of the first drone medical package delivery operations Starting in uh, in Raleigh with WakeMed, in uh Matternet and UPS, um, which we'll hear about today, and then uh and then expanding to some other locations. So you know, at the end of the IPP back in uh, October of last year, we had five drone Acronym delivery... alert. <laughs> yeah, IP
1: <laughs>
2: integration pilot program, the UAS integration pilot program, which was um, a program that FAA and uh, USDOT, Department of Transportation, um, ran. Um, at the end of that three-year program, we had five uh, routine operations operations, in North Carolina and four of those were associated with medical package delivery. So we had um WakeMed that was delivering uh blood specimens via drone with UPS in Raleigh. We had um Wake Forest Baptist Health in Winston-Salem delivering uh pharmaceutical items including an infusion um that had a shelf life of about an hour. It was delivered via drone to the infusion clinic from the pharmacy. We had Zipline flying COVID response um, PPE in Charlotte uh, with Novant Health, and then we had Valancy flying um, vaccines with Merck, which is a big pharmaceutical company, and it's gotten a lot of attention recently because they're helping um, produce the J&J vaccine, Um, but uh, in Wilson, North Carolina, so those are the four medical package delivery operations we had, and then the last one was, uh, well, it wasn't a medical package, but it was COVID-related, was Walmart partnered with Causey and Flytrex. And they are flying uh, supplies that you could order from Walmart to a neighborhood. And uh, that way people could shelter in place or stay in place. Or if they're immunocompromised or, or elderly, they had access to drone delivery. So that was, that's pretty exciting. So, yeah, we've been really fortunate. So, yeah, there's definitely a market. We've seen the market here start, but there's a lot of work to do chris you were you did a um you know a study the u a m study for NASA, and I think one of the things you looked at was the impact of u a m in in the medical space as well
1: yeah the, one of the the markets that we focused on was the air ambulance market um which is interesting because uh, obviously we touch it, touch on that uh um, i think we will touch on that today but um you know partially it was you know how do we win over the public with this new technology? And and typically, if you're saving lives, if you're fighting for freedom, uh, public will put up with a little bit of extra noise, a little bit of extra expense. Um, so there was that uh, angle um, for for kind of determining that that's a viable market. But really, there's there's real application of of small drones, but also urban air mobility or regional mobility in in using um, those types of EV-tall vehicles to move cargo and personnel. I mean, it'll be amazing, right, if we can move, you know, our next guest, Dr. Ginn, Dr. Stuart Ginn, from one hospital uh, to another, uh, and his schedule is, is actually not restricted to, to one location, but he can be in multiple places uh, over the course of the day without spending too much time or wasting too much time uh, in traffic or, or commuting. So, yeah, the air ambulance market, in addition to the airport shuttle and the air taxi market, were three markets that were highlighted in in that NASA, NASA market study.
2: And Ravi, I think there's this... Um what medical marijuana market to to deliver to via drones in the california area uh, yep of course, of course
1: california
0: yeah gum- control you guys yeah it's okay i mean every wednesday gummies are half off for <laughs> Drone deliveries, so. i, I want to just find out what's up with north kakalaki always getting these these drone firsts everywhere i mean what is this what is up with that state i gotta I got to dig into this and find out, you know. Hey,
1: you I went mean, to school down here, man. I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's so. a special state. We we <laughs> like to be first in a lot of things. Yeah. Not all you know. is uh, not all is good, but most most aviation related things are good. All
2: right, guys, we have a special guest tonight. Um this is I know a lot have said uh have called me Dr. Drone in the past, but this is the real legit Dr. Drone. Not only does this gentleman have uh, a, a pilot license and has flown in the airlines but he is also a doctor so uh and a leader really in the UAS space so we're excited to have Dr. Stuart Ginn from WakeMed joining us on our podcast today all right
3: thanks Bizzle that
0: finally a real
2: doctor thanks guys awesome yeah <laughs> yeah
3: he didn't say doctor of what but that's
0: okay awesome welcome Stuart glad to have you on thanks Thanks for having me, guys. This has been a uh, a while coming here, right, guys? Yeah,
2: yeah. It's, I mean, part of my success at NCDOT is due to to Stuart. So I, I owe a lot to him. So I'm excited to bring him on and, and tell his story. And um, he's always... I'll be honest, every time um, I talk with him or have him on a panel, I always learn something, uh, something really inter- interesting about the industry that I didn't know. So hopefully that'll be the same for you guys.
1: I, I concur. And how many doctors are there who have ATPLs? And <laughs> a- acronym, acronym, I got to spell out the acronym, air traffic, <clears throat> sorry, air transport pilot's license, ATPL. So that's that's some of the feedback we got. So we we need to make sure that you know our guests <laughs> know what we're talking about and don't go off in in aviation jargon. But I guess we have to watch out for medical jargon today as well. Probably so. Yeah, I'll try to keep a lid on it.
0: <laughs> it's an acronym nightmare here, the medical field and aviation. So I'm excited to hear about yeah how you have a pilot's license and you're a doctor. So it's two different fields, sort of. But then there are some similarities and some, you know, common ground that, uh, lead to innovation. So definitely exciting and a a great mix here, Stuart. So glad to have you on board today and, um, looking forward to it. Let's go have some fun.
3: Yeah, sounds great, guys.
2: So where did it start, Stuart? Tell us about how you got into aviation, um, and how you really ended up to in your position that you are today.
3: Yeah. So uh, that's a, that's a bit of a story. I, I've been an aviation kid from, from the beginning. I was one of those kids who, who soloed when he was 16 years old. It's all I ever cared about when I was a kid was flying airplanes. It's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, I actually, you know, so I started, I, you know, I'm one of these kids who started taking flying lessons by mowing grass, you know, when I was in high school and when I was 14 and 15, I learned at Smith Reynolds airport there in Winston-Salem. I soloed there. Yeah. I, you know, so I, Aviation was kind of in my blood from the beginning and, and, uh, and got my pilot's license while I was in college. And then, you know, I was an English major (laughs) in college (laughs) and, and, uh, because I wanted to be a pilot and I, and I like lit. So I, I, uh, while I was in school, I went to university of Virginia and while I was there, I, I kind of kept pushing. I kept, I got my instrument rating and I got a commercial license and I became a flight instructor and so I joined a local flight school there, just sort of part time, and and then when I graduated college in 2000, I was able to. I initially went down to Florida and was a flight instructor at one of the big mills, and then uh, I, I I had an opportunity to move back to DC uh, about six months later and. Uh, was really fortunate to get a job at an airline called Atlantic Coast Airlines, which was at the time the largest United Express carrier uh, based in in Dulles. And they subsequently became um, independent there and then promptly went out of business right around the time I left. And so I I was lucky and did that for about, that was from 2000 to about 2001 to about 2004. And I just got so I was an FO on a Jetstream 41 turboprop, and then a CRJ 200 based out of Dulles, and I flew out of Chicago a lot, and I loved it. I mean, it was you know kind of like the, the dream come true, of flying airplanes for a living. But to be honest, I started getting bored pretty quickly. This will be a recurring theme, you might notice. <laughs> and uh, I got, you know, I just got. Re- I had always been interested in math and science. I grew up in a sort of a medical family, and and uh, so I just got more and more interested in that. And ultimately, when the airline decided to go independent, they offered voluntary furloughs. And so I took one and went back and got my prerequisites done while we were living in D.C. and then, you know, took the MCAT and, you know, I worked as an ER tech in an emergency department. I got an EMT rating and did research, all kinds of stuff, and then ended up uh, in medical school starting in 2006 back in Winston-Salem at Wake Forest. And then uh initially finished med school there and stayed on as an orthopedic surgery resident and then of course changed my mind again <laughs> decided <laughs> I wanted to be an ear nose and throat surgeon so i ended up at stanford uh for my residency training in palo alto uh from 2011 to 2015 i mean so during this whole time i'd completely left aviation behind you know i hadn't had time or money to do it and and i was watching this drone technology develop on the side this was right when in fact, I bought a DJI Phantom 2, I think, while I was a resident. Um, and, you know, this was right when things were hitting. When DJI was hitting the mainstream, these were becoming mm-hmm. actual. And so and through Stanford, you know, Stanford's a very uh, special place. And I was able, I was exposed to the ecosystem around innovation and in healthcare through a program called Stanford Biodesign. And they basically train people to think through how do you innovate and solve problems all the way through to a market in healthcare. Um, and you know, I, I discovered just Matternet was there. Matternet had just started up, had spun out of Singularity University and I managed to get in touch with Andreas, the CEO. This was when their team was like, I think they had five or six people and we just exchanged emails. I had, I had tried to help them work through some, some some sort of concepts of operation around laboratory samples and blood products, but not much came of it.
2: Was End this like coming... a project? Was this a project for while you're at the meds, while you're Unoffic- there for your residency?
3: Yeah, unofficially. I mean, I was working with Metternet at the time to try to do something specifically in at Stanford. I wanted to figure out if there was a way. But, you know, you remember that was back in 2013, 2014. There was just no pathway. I mean, the pathway was Pathfinder, right? And, and there was no pathway. Yeah. So that evolved. And when I came to Raleigh in 2015 to join WakeMed, uh, in my current job, I also sort of came here under the condition that I would help them start an innovation program at WakeMed separate to my clinical job. And, and then immediately there was momentum around the drone industry. And so these two things came together very, sort of very fluidly. And I, and we found an opportunity to, to kind of create a model for how we might use drones at WakeMed to deliver blood samples. And there was incredible internal intake, you know, uh, enthusiasm from our lab directors about it. It really did solve a problem. That's what that's what resonated. They had a problem they were trying to solve, and this technology could feasibly solve that problem at, at least over a certain amount of time. And so it's kind of the first major project we did as an innovation team was trying to uh, you know work with MatterNet and uh, eventually NC State and DOT, and then the IPP was announced. Basil, as you know, and that's when you guys came to us and said, hey, would you like to join this this project and and the rest is kind of history. We all, you know, the, the DOT and your team applied, uh, you know, using that CONOPS ops we developed and, and then we, we went into business sort of.
4: Yeah.
2: So It was, uh, it was interesting um, to kind of hearing the backstory because, you know, we, when we applied for that proposal, you'd already laid the groundwork in these relationships that went back years and years. So when we put that proposal together and, and submitted it in 2018, I think that was yeah, that was helpful to have those relationships established. It told a good story.
3: Yeah, I think so. It was, I was very persistent. <laughs> I mean, it, it was really a good sign to me. It was almost a litmus test I was performing when I first got here, around specifically around what this institution's tolerance for innovation would be. And I mean, I went, I went and sort of talked to a couple mentors about the idea. Hey, I'd like to find a way to onboard drones into our operations. I think it would be really valuable for the industry and for us. And and i was sent immediately to the head lawyer wow. at WakeMed. Lit literally they said well you need to go talk to this person first and and she was more than supportive in fact it it started a conversation about our our bigger innovation vision and uh, so the rest has been history i mean with with you know ups and downs as i don't have to tell you about but um i thought it was interesting the way that i, I agree it had been a lot sort of a, a lot of work and a long time coming but you know that's the way these things tend to go, I think. <laughs>
0: the great thing is yeah. that it seems like no wasn't the first answer. It was like, okay, let's let's not say no. Let's just go figure this out. How can we actually get it done and, and initiate or implement something like this? So that's that's a yeah. positive sign for the the folks that you're actually working with. So great.
3: It's true. And that was a really validating experience. I, I was sure they were going to say you're completely crazy. <laughs> and, I, you know, and I was also very upfront with them. I wanted to sort of mitigate and be very honest. I said, you know, this is a brand new technology and it's it's in its infancy and there will be issues. <laughs> and so you have to be willing to tolerate that. And this is kind of bleeding edge stuff. And and I said, I remember, I, I you know, just to try to sort of you know, drive the point home, I remember saying something the effective I mean, it's, it's very possible that if we do this, we'll crash a drone, <laughs> just trying to scare yeah. them and just trying to scare them. And the response was immediately, oh, we, uh, you know, they crashed an the ambulance last week, you know, it's kind of, like, <laughs> you know, just, just, you know it, give, it makes you realize it's just, you're working on a different, you know, different sort of toleration of risk than they, than we're used to in the aviation industry and with the FAA for <laughs> yeah. so better or for worse.
0: What are some of those challenges? I mean, it'd be interesting. because you you kind of started off a little bit having experience, kind of setting it up with the relationship with MatterNet, and of course the IPP comes along, and you're beginning everything at uh, WakeMed in terms of the innovation side, that department. What are some of the God the biggest challenges? I can imagine it's quite a few, but some that stand out for you know in terms of implementing testing the. What are some of the failures? Were there times where you just were like, okay, God, how much more can we go through before we hit the success <laughs> milestone, right?
3: Yeah, that's a great I mean that that is fairly accurate. We you know the biggest challenge, is, like I, you know like I said, we had a lot of internal support. I, I think this has been a story that tends to repeat itself despite what you read in the news around drones and and sort of public opinion, although that's obviously changing favorably as we, as we all have observed. As people sort of acclimate to the technology and realize what it can do for us all, but but uh, we had so much internal support because it's just such a fascinating idea. And I, I'll go back to this a couple of times probably during this whole conversation, but really and truly, they saw an immediate need. Uh, the the uh, the analogy I used to try to communicate this internally was for pneumatic tube systems, and I talk about this a lot now because it really did resonate with them. I mean. Pneumatic tube systems that live inside walls and root ceilings are, u- are ubiquitous in healthcare systems, and, and they connect every unit in the hospital through a little tube station, and they just kind of seamlessly whisk things around the hospital invisibly. And uh, it's, it's like lo- the
2: bank, like the bank, it, uh, exactly I guess like the-, the bank. Oh yeah, yep. yeah. Put your money in there. Yeah, yep. like when you
3: drove up to the bank when they had tellers and you put the thing and it went up. Or if you've seen Tommy Boy, there's a great pneumatic <laughs> system. <I don't> know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Rob Lowe. But anyway, so so but. Um, so but you know, that's an immediately understandable uh technology and concept in healthcare systems. And the director of the lab said, you know, I want to connect this. When we built this facility across the street from the main hospital, the main lab is in the main hospital campus, and there's an off sort of right across the main street, which is where our route runs now. There's a freestanding surgery center and clinics and imaging center, and there's a bunch of clinical services there. When they built that, which is a relatively new building, he really lobbied hard to get them to install a, uh, a pneumatic tube system under the road because the volume of labs coming across to his lab was going to be substantial every day. And they said, no, it was going to cost him a couple million dollars. Wow. And he, he immediately said, well, this was the tube system I asked for, you know, years <laughs> ago. So, I mean, it, to me, it validated this need. But But in terms of challenges, it was the little details around... Around integrating into our actual operations, the little things that so many of us—this will probably come up again. I'm kind of uh, fanatical about this, but it—it it, it, we we tend to approach this technology in the industry like an aviation and aerospace technology. But a lot of the challenges are on actually letting the customers and users integrate it and figure out how it changes their operations and impacts their operations. Now that wasn't a difficult problem to solve, but we had to think through all of these security issues around our facility. Are we loud on the roof? What about uh, the the steel beams in the roof, and are they interfering with the uh, with the uh, magnetic, you know, or whatever the cat the the electronic capture system that the MatterNet drone right. uses? Uh, we have MRIs uh, that are both on trucks and in buildings, and they had magnetized some of this. All those little issues, a lot of them were around facilities, personnel, and, and safety. Wow. Um, and operationally, it was pretty straightforward, but those were the, the biggest challenges. And we had to align a lot of stakeholders internally. I mean, we had the team that went after this internally was huge, it's, it's totally invisible to the industry side, sort of the aviation industry side, but and we had a team of 10 people at WakeMed who were just uh, just working to integrate this into our operation. So initially it was a big lift, but it, but once we got it, once we got it rolling, it was a lot easier.
1: So how does this type of innovation compare to innovation in, in the healthcare sector? So, and, and I asked that from, from the technology standpoint, but also from the regulatory standpoint, because I think we have a lot to learn from other industries that, as you know, the aviation, we, we think we're special, right? As <laughs> aviators or in the industry and don't want to, don't necessarily lean on other industries. And I, i on the regulatory side i think you know how do these vaccines get approved for you know use in a year well yeah le- let me apply that that process to getting drone operations approved in a year and send that to faA yeah,
3: yeah that would be great <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, I, so I, I, I've tried. it's
1: a, i mean it's it's F- fda and faA i mean so <laughs> can you speak to that a little bit
3: yeah, definitely. Um, so first of all, nobody thinks they're more special than surgeons. Nobody in the world thinks they're more special. I promise you. So, so my, my, I've been a oh, pilot and a surgeon. Um, so, uh, but, you,
1: so you are special then? Okay. Uh, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> but <guys> um, <laughs> no, I think, we, I think we all know that. But no, um,
3: but no I, I, um, honestly, though, I, you know, for, that's a really good question. We do, you know, our innovation team uh, does a lot of, Sort of throughout the life cycle of innovation, and we're mostly working with early stage technology companies that want to partner with our healthcare system, and we do some venture as well. Um, but we're, we're contacting companies with a lot of sort of small scale technology, and then there are obviously on sort of a healthcare system level, you're dealing with a lot of partnerships and, and with, with much larger companies who also innovate, like GE and Siemens, and, and we have partnerships with all those all those companies. From a regulatory standpoint, yeah, I agree that that we could learn a lot. Part of it really comes down to how you tolerate and manage risk. And I know that sounds really obvious, but strange as it sounds, in some ways, now, now I'm not talking about from a business standpoint, but from a from a regulatory standpoint, risk is just a part of what we do in medicine and surgery. It's just a real living, breathing thing. And you see it like aviation is suffering from its own success in the sense that, I mean, and the great thing is I got to see both of these worlds. I got to be an airline pilot and see how well that system works from a safety standpoint, from standardization, all those systems. It's a, a huge, towering achievement of, of mankind that's taken for granted. And then over to the healthcare and surgery side where it's much more chaotic, and there's a lot of more direct risk that we just accept because we have to, And so I think that kind of, in some ways, permeates everything we do. While we're not as good at managing safety as airlines are, because maybe the deck is stacked against us to some degree, from an innovation standpoint, it's just understood that some risk is necessary. So So why, sorry to interrupt, but why can you expand on
1: why are you, why are we, you willing to take that risk on in the medical profession and it's okay for loss of life and, you know, the, the, the blood rules and the blood laws in the medical profession, but it's not in the aviation profession?
3: That's a really good question. I don't know that I know the answer. I have a theory. Um, And the theory is that it's such a human experience. Medicine and surgery is such a human endeavor. We all kind of intuitively understand it and understand those risks. We've been sick. we've, We've had family members who were sick. And some of us have, many of us have been through surgery, and uh, or or contacted, me, you know, been impacted by medical technology positively and negatively. I just think it's a it's a relatively shared human experience. So we all kind of have access to it. We all have access to some degree to the benefits, but but we all share some of the risks. The FAA's challenge and and is that you know, again, on the one hand, they're, they're suffering from their own success. And the standards for safety for this new industry are incredibly high as we all know, and they should be. But, but uh, it's more unilateral is, is my theory. The FAA is, probably feels like they're standing on an island and it's just all up to them to make sure that everyone is safe and that the system doesn't, the new technology doesn't impact the really good system they've already built. And, and so to me, that's part of the dynamic. Part of that comes down to a question of access. This is not a technology that a lot of people have access to and familiarity with yet. Um, drones and EVTOLs and advanced air mobility, but they will. Um, but right now it's part of the whole question about social license and healthcare. We just have more social license. People are more tolerant of that shared risk. And I think that permeates up in the regulatory levels as well. I mean, they'd never admit it, but, it, but it's true. Thank
2: you. One of the things we learned when we were putting together a safety case for the FAA is there it was when they looked at these new drone operations it was strictly only the risk associated with um you know the ground risk and the air risk but it, you couldn't factor in if this particular drone mission had a life-saving effect. So they didn't know how to factor in these outside you know impacts and and we it's not just me- medical package delivery it's also things like um you know you're replacing a drone operation that was a someone climbing a tower to do inspection well there's a risk for that individual to climb the tower they just didn't know how to quantify that and then give credit for it which i think if we approach i think some of these life-saving you know medical drone missions i think we sh- you know that's one way to try to get uh, access to the airspace and be able to implement some of these operations quicker than than normal
3: yeah i think that's a great point it's like you have to internalize all those those risks that you're avoiding that you're mitigating and it's hard to do that because there's not as many yeah. metrics around it whereas in healthcare, that's just kind of assumed <laughs> we all understand the risks and and sort of share them we don't tolerate them but we share them yeah you know that was similar as we were doing our study it occurs to me basil a, a coherent example of that is as we were doing our kind of burn-ins around the first route and we were working on the waiver for the flight over Sunnybrook road uh, and they were getting traffic counts and doing all those things that we were asked that the DOT was asked to do to gather the data to let the FAA kind of crunch on that, that risk strategy. You know, what was, I kept saying like, what about the, all the times we send a a, a person running across that street with no crosswalk with the sample in their hands and we're, no, we're not going to have to do that anymore. But that wasn't a part of the equation, you know, cause like you said, they couldn't, figure out how to calculate it that's a really good point
0: what for the uh just for the listeners that aren't aren't as familiar with matternet and you know the significance of of what you guys achieved wake med and matternet um in north carolina and raleigh could you touch on that a little bit just you know how significant it, it was and you know what was it you know that was just changing the game basically uh in this area
3: yeah, so I mean that's something I'm really proud of, and I think Basil is as well, and the the team at the DOT, and probably Basil has is a, a better handle on what the, the larger impact and implications of our particular operation. But I guess technically, it was the first commercial uh, drone-based package delivery system that operationalized in the in the country. And as far as I know, that's true. It, there was nobody else yeah. that was that was flying a commercial operation. And this was what I'm really proud of. What we're really proud of is that it wasn't a, a. Well, there was an enormous amount of PR generated around it, especially once UPS got involved. What we loved about it is it was just, it, it just melted into our everyday operations. It's just a fact of life at Wake Med. And the fact that it's nearly invisible is my favorite thing about it. And, we kind of quietly for two years have just been running this system while you know while everybody else continues to work. Now we'd like you know the original plan was to expand it uh, and and connect our three hospitals and our larger network in our region, and we still anticipate being able to do that someday. FAA, <laughs> but um, but you know I I still think that it was a significant step. But I'm I'm sure that that you guys on the aviation side had a, a maybe even a, a better handle on what what the impact might've been for the industry.
2: Well, one of the things um, I think that was so impactful is it was a routine operation. So not, you know, we did the, we did like the demonstration flight in August of 2018, but then in March, what was it? March or February of 2019, you guys started your routine package delivery operation. So that was, I mean, you want to talk a little bit about that? That's pretty much like nine to five, what the schedule looks like.
3: Yeah. For, so the operation as it stands now is that single route, which as the crow flies, is only about a third of a mile, but it connects a very busy outpatient facility back to a, a, our, our main hospital. And what we're shipping right now are lab samples, so patient blood samples. And that just get generated in the routine operations of the surgery center and the clinics. And I operate at that surgery center, and which is one of my favorite things too, because every now and then I'd walk outside and there'd be a drone taken off a little <laughs> point of pride there. but um, but um, so we the, it's right now it's operated as a scheduled service and it basically runs every hour or half an hour depending on you know weather permitting and all the other you know constraints considered. But uh, it is the bulk of our shipments now from between those two facilities are managed by that drone system. and it's just again, it's a tube system it's a port of life. When, when the system goes down we revert to the old system which is just it's a it's a stop on the courier. Uh, Network and our delivery times go from 10 minutes to two
4: hours.
3: (laughs) So you know it's a it's a noticeable change when it goes down. Um, But it's basically sort of a running living. And what's amazing too is that in the two years it's been running, I have actually seen a drone flying three times. Because (laughs) a lot of it's because I spend a lot of time in rooms with no windows. But beyond (laughs) but beyond that, you know, it's pretty. it, It turns out to be pretty inconspicuous, which which was interesting to us. So one so of the
2: things... Dr- oh, sorry, go ahead. So, sorry, just a, a little bit more detail. So they're drawing blood, yeah. and they're, they have your... You know, there's little vials that you see, and they're putting those in the drone. It's flying it from the surgical center over to the laboratory, which is in their main hospital building, and then they conduct, you know, the test on the blood. Um, and so typically that would take what? They go by twice a day in a van or something? Or is it twice or...
3: I think they had, uh, at times it was supposed to be every hour, but then it, it was really more like two or three times effectively per day. And it was on the, on the courier network. And if they had a stat or urgent, they would literally have somebody run across the street. Uh, but that didn't happen that often. So the, the effective delivery time, I think they averaged, we looked at the data early on. It's been a, a while, but I think even in the best cases, the average delivery time was somewhere around 45 minutes to an hour and a half and that was being pretty generous with a huge amount of variability up to 4 hours uh and that dropped down pretty quickly to now every half hour because we, we we the the in terms of capacity the drone was perfect i mean we we rarely i don't think we've ever had a situation where we needed to send the drone twice, although we certainly could in rapid succession, but the capacity matching is really perfect for this particular payload. So, what
0: what's the elevation we're
3: we're, we're looking at here?
0: What's the typical elevation for yeah. those drones, during
3: delivery? So, I think I'd have to I'd have to look, but I'm pretty sure that they're flying between two and three hundred feet. Basically, you might know better yeah. than I do. Yep. Um, yep. It's not up to the four hundred feet. Uh, it has to go across a building and a road, and then actually two buildings it actually flies over the main hospital and then lands in front of the other side of the hospital.
2: Um, and, the, and there's a helipad there. I mean, it's not, it, you know, sometimes you discount, Oh, it's only, it's a third of a mile, but it's actually over a pretty busy road over property that's not owned by WakeMed, um over what's there. Is there, I don't think there's a railroad track, there's some other road and then, um yep. And then you're deconflicting with the helicopter pad. Yeah. Which you have medevac flights in and out of, so we have two,
3: two active helipads. On the building, and and that you know, I probably should have mentioned that with one of the challenges. I mean, that's been a a big limitation. Is that there's been a tight communication loop, obviously, between the 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 drone teams and the the dispatchers, and that was something we obviously wanted to get a handle on pretty quickly. With bottom line is, if there's a drone, if there's a heli on the pad, or incoming, or out, or scheduled to out fly out, we just hold the drone. It doesn't fly until there's there's no clearance. But that is that that was a challenge too. Wonder what the and it's sir. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Now it was very manual process. So it's just right now it's just direct communications just because we want that human element in there.
0: What are some of the, the weather challenges? I mean, I can imagine with ice in North Carolina it shuts the entire state down. <laughs> um, you know, if you can't, there's no backup, right? For So a drone would probably be the most logical <clears throat> tool to really get, get the delivery done because – I'm Afraid of anybody left the parking lot in North Carolina when there's ice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to school you've
2: down there, the I noticed, like, <laughs> you've seen the pictures from Snow, Snowmageddon. What was that like in 2016
0: or something where that
2: car's yeah. on fire? Yeah,
1: yeah. And, right. and you've, you've, Robbie, you've had first-hand experience, right? Yeah, I mean, going <laughs> to
0: college down there and and seeing uh one tractor on 85 uh plowing one lane or barely a lane that was uh, you know. Couldn't get to that's the Piggly right. Wiggly or Wind Dixie, so it was pretty tough.
3: You want to get, you, what you want to do is you want to get right up behind that guy. <laughs> <laughs> pretty hard. <horrible. laughs> so, um, yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think probably by the numbers, and I'd have to look at the data. It's wind is the big is the most likely constraint typically, and I think it's because you know, on top of whatever actual limitations the aircraft is being determined to have, these are regulatory constraints that add buffers. So wind is probably the most likely thing that shuts us down or maybe low ceiling, which is not that common. Normally this time of year, it's been terrible around here. I guess any precipitation or low ceiling, but you know, it, it just goes to show you some of the issues this brings up. Initially, they were, yeah, I, I love this story because when they started this operation, everybody says, okay, we're, we're gonna use these weather minimums. and it was like, okay. Where are we going to get the weather report?
4: <laughs> RDU, RDU is like
3: 15 miles away. Yeah. So the absence of hyperlocal weather data made made the the imposition of, of of ceiling minimums and winds even an absolute farce at first. And so we had to figure that out. And I think we all agree that over time things like hyperlocal weather and sensor integration are going to be critical to this industry. But it just goes to show you sort of how the kind of issues you had to to deal with.
0: You mean you guys, but, you know,
3: I, I will, you know, I will say that the, you know, the, the wind, the, the weather constraints, I mean, I agree, you know, I, I think eventually we'll figure out what the envelope for these aircraft are as they get certified, you know, as a good through the certification process with the FAA, but presumably a drone in snow is probably safer in reality than a car in snow. Although, I mean, I, you know, I'm not an engineer and it probably is case by case, but probably it'll reach a point where it'll flip and the, and the drone becomes the safer option. Plus you're taking a human off the road. Yeah. just yeah. talking about internalizing risk that's a hundred that's a lot less risky Oh yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, I don't evolve that way I'm sure you mean you guys are't
0: yeah
1: yeah I'm sorry I actually no no I was just gonna say that a uh, recent conversation about uh, with some folks in in Canada who are looking to move vaccines using drones and and I learned something new there because they they said you know access accessibility to some of the more remote areas is better in the winter than the summer because of the ice. And I was like, wait, what? And they were like, yeah, it's, the ice is thick enough and strong enough to withstand, you know, <laughs> uh, aircraft landing or people driving on it. Wow. And, I, you know, that takes a whole different level of, 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 uh, you know, let's say courage. Um, uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, so, yeah. So, so one of the things that, I, I did want to pivot the conversation into is, um, so we've talked a lot about drones and, and package delivery, of course, and the next wave is, is you know, attack you know, uh, Advanced Air Mobility, UAM, and whatever the, f- the acronym of phrase is, uh, by the way, UAM is Urban Air Mobility. I've been chastised by these two for for using too many acronyms, so I'm on my I'm trying to be on my best behavior. Um, so, so what are your thoughts on on the next wave of, I guess, big drone technology and and healthcare?
3: Yeah, I I have strong opinions about this. As Basil will tell you, I I actually think, and I'm obviously biased. Uh, I, I look at the industry unfolding around EVTOLs, electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, and the essentially human-sized drones, both with pilots and eventually without without them. And obviously, I understand that. I think we all understand that sort of the the moonshot is urban, massively scaled urban transportation systems. And a lot of that is in the image of Uber Elevate, which is a whole other discussion. Um, and that's great. And, you know, that, that's a, that's a worthy goal as, as our, as our planet urbanizes over the next decades, it's going to be a challenge worth solving in the short term before we have to spend the trillions of dollars on infrastructure that that will cost probably, um, which no one is know, talking
1: about, by the way, which
3: nobody talks about right. much at all. I love, that's my favorite part is, um, is there's just healthcare is just replete with opportunities to leverage sort of a more accessible aviation technology like a lot of technologies that i think are are you know the word disruptive gets tossed around a lot but meaning you know it's you know when a when a technology category reaches a point where for whatever reason it becomes accessible cheap distributed uh you know that's when things that's when industries change and that's personal computers and things like that internet and and you know this might be the an industry that's, that's going to do that with aviation. And, and right now we're all fascinated with it because it's, it's aviation, but I think there's a time in 50 years when it's not a big deal. And these things are flying around much more routinely and people are used to them with eVTOLS and healthcare. There's this, there's, there's a longstanding uh, uh, connection between aviation, especially helicopters and healthcare. And it's basically around trauma systems, but you know, over half of, of helicopter flights for met for medical purposes are actually in facility so there's a lot of opportunities for healthcare systems to use uh flying vehicles especially if they're quieter safer and more efficient uh than helicopters and i think those things will be critical like it, the engineering aspects of the evtols as an example why will, ha- will be critical noise will be hugely important if we want to be able to use them a lot which we can in healthcare. then they have to be quiet and they have to be safe and then I would I would also add that the infrastructure systems that are already in place in healthcare I mean there's there's aviation infrastructure built sort of baked in there's helipads everywhere that almost never get used they need charging infrastructure and presumably you know there's plenty of other things they will need to support these kind of operations but it's a much uh, much lighter lift than building a brand new vertiport in the middle of a city and uh, and then the final thing is that in healthcare the bar that you have to reach in terms of performance and economic value is lower or higher, I don't know which way to say it, (laughs) than it would be for a massively scaled urban transportation network where everything in healthcare is ridiculously expensive and and human lives are at stake. Um, But generally speaking, where I'd like to see it go, where I think it's gonna go, is that as these vehicles come online and the infrastructure gets built and the digital systems get built and they become available, you know, I'd like to see EV become like elevators, like in the way that dro- in the way that drones or tube systems. I don't see why EVTOLs can't be elevators in healthcare systems. There's an enormous amount of value in terms of patient care, and even the way healthcare systems can design their systems and reach patients. What, what, what could change fundamentally? So I, I think that's the big opportunity.
1: So, so do you think? So one of the things on the aviation sector is automation and uh autonomy scares the hell out of the union and natca and like wait what your remote FAA. towers faa like yeah <laughs> it's a scary proposition right so so i'm going to be the devil's advocate on the healthcare side it's like wait but we don't need to hire two Stuart gins because i could use this EV toll to get him from winston-salem to raleigh in 30 minutes why do I invest in another doctor to Stuart again? So how do you kind of balance that, that fear of, of obviously job security or workforce development and the development of, of technology? Because, you know, I, I love the idea of you being available to some of these rural communities, right, that don't have access but then yeah. the the people who have access would be like, Oh, let me make more profit because I can fly Dr. Stuart Ginn over here instead of hiring a doctor
3: who yeah. specializes in locally in, in, exactly. Well, first of all, I'm worth it. For sure. <laughs> but, um, so it. but no, that's a really good question. So so for a couple things. So um yeah, the, the A word, automation is is has implications for technology development, for regulatory development and for economic development and even political implications um, which are important to mitigate. It's not a new story, by the way. I mean, and the economic history is just rife with examples of this, uh, of, of whether or not automation kills jobs or creates them. But leaving all that aside in healthcare, first of all, we are working... Uh, and I think rural health care is a really great place to start talking about this, because we are working from a major deficit already in terms of the availability of medical care in rural areas. and And that includes facilities, expertise, technology, people, all of it. And that's getting worse. Rural hospitals are closing. Uh, services are consolidating because they're expensive. And it's leaving lots of Americans. Think about it like broadband access. If they're tearing down mm-hmm. towers, already there's deserts, but it's getting worse in healthcare in rural areas. So you're working from a from a deficit to begin with, meaning anything you can do to, to mitigate that and to Im- improve, for instance, access or even like bi-directional access, moving patients in or or practitioners and technology out. Um, the idea being you want to create this nodal infrastructure, a very dynamic uh, fluid access to care, and and we're trying to solve the problem of patient access. It's one potential strategy. It's not going to be a golden, you know, it's not it's not going to be a golden BB. It's going to require a, like everything in healthcare and anything else, a complex set of solutions. But it is a category of technology that might finally help push us in that direction, make it actually possible to 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 sort of connect patients in rural locations to care they need but can't can't access currently. And then the second piece is a little bit separate from that, is specifically t- to EVTOLs and the larger vehicles. I mean, I think I think we probably most of us anticipate, and I'm definitely not. I talk like an expert in aviation, but I'm not, um, you know, that they are going to be pilots or operators or something on board those things initially. And I think we all probably think that's probably a reasonable guess. But it's a question of what those people need to be trained to do. They don't need to keep the blue side up like a helicopter pilot does um they might be more like drone operators and so you know I know we talk about this as SBO or simplified vehicle operations that through the you know NASA and the FAA are talking about that and those are some Ac- interesting acronym co- i learned. thank I you know. <laughs> so, yeah but I said s- simplified vehicle operations but um but those uh you know those systems uh, developing you know healthcare is full of highly trained people involved in the transport of patients already at WakeMed we have a I think 120 or 130 people who all they do is transport wow. for healthcare. We do tw- we do 20 to 30 thousand transports a year in my healthcare system, both into, out of, and to, and to regional healthcare centers around us, and that's mostly trucks and, and cars. But it's an enormous transportation footprint. So a so lot of those. Folks you meant can be, quick, yeah.
2: Quick question. Sorry, interrupt. You you mentioned a statistic, and I think it's relevant to to your comments now. About medevac flights, how many medevac patients that are flown in are they leave the same day?
3: Uh, there's great national level data about this, and it's a, a big controversy in trauma surgery. Remember that trauma, the entire trauma system in in the United States is is based on transportation, right? It's all about moving the correct the patient, you know, triaging patients and moving them. It's based on the military's constructs so they came up with in the '60s and '70s. But there's some shocking statistics about overutilization of, of helicopter transports, and it's not a simple answer. There's market forces in play. There are there's uncertainty on triage on the ground at play. But it's most studies show 50 or 60 percent of patients walk out of the hospital. There it ranges from what what you read. You might read 30 percent. The best I've ever read is 30 percent of patients at a wow. given trauma center get flown in and they walk out of the front front door of the ER. You know, an hour or two later. Wow. Um, it's In in industry terms, that's an acceptable uh, decision and risk because you're trying to balance over-triage with under-triage. So the general rule is much better to over-triage and not wish you would transfer the patient quickly than to under-triage and find a patient in a big, you know, having a lot of trouble when they get to the hospital. But still, uh, there's just a lot of opportunity for improvement (laughs) on that.
0: One thing I wanted to come back to a little bit on the infrastructure side, you had some great points um, with regards to how nobody's talking about the infrastructure requirements, but I was thinking about it's, I would say there's a huge advantage for, you know, the city planners to start coordinating closely with the, the healthcare within the city to understand, okay, where to locate these types of facilities, what makes the most sense, you know, what's the, the hospital or healthcare facility able to do Um, or accommodate in terms of uh, a vertiport or helipad whichever whatever is going to be in terms of infrastructure and i don't hear that even being discussed i think that's a that's another thing that you know this discussion has brought light to um it's definitely want to start relaying that to folks that we know within the the transit agencies the planning side um you know start to consider that
3: yeah i think that's a great point ravi i mean i and Basil and Chris probably both know this. It's something I'm pretty interested in. Um, I think that it's a gigantic blind spot and a, a looming bottleneck. Because along with, you know, if you're not talking to the designers, architects, engineers, uh, people who design and, and think through the spaces we live in, those are the same people that tend to design transportation systems, for one thing. They're also... Intimately familiar with things like zoning and all the issues that come to play when you try to build something in public. Right. And I, I harp on this a lot. This technology will operate in the in the public domain and it it needs to be managed to some degree like a like a public asset. Like a you know and so the systems we build the infrastructures we build digital digital and physical need to be you know accessible open and it can't be a top down approach and I think that. Naturally, we're spending a lot of time thinking about this as an aerospace technology. I always say, maybe just to be annoying, that I, I think this has very little to do with aviation. I think this has everything to do with cities and automa- and robots and automation. And you know, I think it's much closer tied, much much more deeply integrated into our day-to-day you know environment than any aviation technology has ever hoped to be. So that has implications for scaling the systems and for regulating them as well. So I I agree. I think it's a big blind spot. I think what you do is you you have to engage with like you said stakeholders on that side of the equation. They're getting interested in it. If you if you if you you know, and you're an engineer and working in an engineering firm, so you understand this. But even architecture and design and AEC firms are starting to get into the game and understand the potential yep. implications for them and for their cities. And, and this has major potential implications on our communities and just that they need to be involved.
1: So one of my frustrations has been that the, you know, you touched on the infrastructure piece. Not a lot of people are addressing that or talking about it. Uh, community engagement, not a lot of people are doing that. Um, not in this virtual room, but in general. Um, and then you mentioned accessibility and, you know, ultimately, it comes down to the bottom line, and and accessibility and equity plays in, into this. Um, all of those things are not being talked about, or addressed, or invested in. I mean, we've seen the Archer news, the Joby news, uh, the bubble that is building. In in, in my opinion, <laughs> in, in, in in urban mobility, but it is. We're, we're, we're going down the same path without some of these things being talked about or addressed or researched. Um, I don't know. What, what, what are your, how, how are you trying to push for some of these very important discussions and, and topics to be addressed? And, and could you touch a little bit on your experience? I mean, aviation is not a diverse industry, clearly. Um I, I Ravi and I are like not just a minority we are just like the What? A really, we were... really really small minority. I thought we we're a majority. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> well the majority in this on this team on the no U turn team. <laughs> but Basil yeah. is also he also has uh he has uh, all sorts of uh, ethnicities intertwined there. But could you talk a little bit about how those things and the lack of focus on those things combined with the lack of diversity in some of these industries and you know how they are being if they are driving the industry with a certain type of person you're going to end up in a certain type of place right how do we change that how do we yeah it's a really
3: it's a really good it's a really great question and you have you know i think Uh, the behaviors of companies tend to fall along pretty strictly economic lines and that makes sense and it's somewhat predictable despite you know what what might be a stated goal Um, I mean I'll you know I'll use Uber as an example not to pick on them um, (laughs) because they did really set the stage for a lot of this and get people talking about it but but you know if you see what happened to Google to uh, sorry to uh, Uber as they've Evolve, it was Elevate evolved and then was kind of divested. And what remained was, 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 was it blade? The, the basically a, a, a air taxi concept of operations serving wealthy folks in New York City. And yep. um, it's just the low hanging fruit. It's the, it's the only market they see. It's the easiest market to hit. And the risk obviously is if we build systems in that image, we're going to, we're gonna leave out the parts of society that need that need access to the technology more than anybody. More, more importantly, it'll, it'll hamstring the industry. It might be good in the next five years, but in the next 50 years, an industry built along those lines will not scale like it needs to. It needs to be accessible. I mean, this is not a new problem. Broadband access is a huge problem still. As we went through COVID as a healthcare system, and tried to pivot to providing more virtual care. We found massive deserts of broadband access in our own patient communities, right in our neighborhood in Wake Med. And um, oh. you know, it's because that those those projects were financed by, and it made sense at the time. They were financed by the companies, the cell phone companies, and so there was a chance to sort of offset some of the fa- some of the investment in, in developing the systems on the companies who will then monetize them and that makes some sense except they only build in markets that they feel like are worth serving economically so there's a big risk that you leave out huge parts of the population and I think I think that will be the key constraint to be honest with you if if flying, flying things like helicopters already carry an image of being the purview and of the wealthy and um, that's been a barrier that aviation has struggled to cross. They've tried and gotten close with mass commercial operations, you know, at airlines. But this kind of operation has, has been very expensive. And it, in the end, if you're just looking at it as a cold, hard capitalist, it limits the market. And, and if you don't find a way to serve patient people in, in every community, then you're actually hamstringing your own growth over time. I know that's not one the, a solution, but it's but it's definitely a problem.
2: Yeah. One of the things I've always, um, you know, when we talked about healthcare um, use cases for drone delivery, that was the easier conversation to have with communities versus package delivery because, you know, the folks that had Amazon Prime accounts were buying packages to their neighborhood. Um, often, you know, there was a potential that... As we scaled, they'd fly over certain neighborhoods that were disadvantaged to get there and, and the noise and everything else impacts. But with healthcare, you know, everyone has access, you know, everyone um, can benefit from improving healthcare outcomes in a state. And I think there's this huge potential, especially as you hit on earlier, rural, rural communities and and being able to to use drones, whether it's you know like like Valancy and Merck are doing now, flying vaccines with their platform in Wilson, North Carolina, but expanding that to the rural parts of the northern and the in the mountains of our state, and also on the coast of our state, even outside yeah. of kind of our urban areas.
3: Yeah. And so, in, in healthcare, we spend a lot of time talking. I, those of us who think about healthcare on a system level and think about innovation in healthcare, you know, sort of beyond medical devices. You know, we, th- these are what we call social determinants of health. So it's food security, transportation and shelter, in addition to just access to healthcare services and technology. And everybody in the medical field knows through a lot of rigorous research that it's actually the social determinants of health that impact actual human health and the outcomes mm. much to a much greater effect. And that means they're hard to solve for. But it does make it a great guiding star. You know, if you're if you're trying to build systems and businesses with those, ki- serving those kinds of markets and needs in mind, things like food deserts for drones, yeah, yep. uh, which is a really important concept in healthcare, and things like uh, access to medications and laboratory services for drones. And and then as we scale up to eVTOLs, even bringing people in or bringing practitioners to them. I mean, you know, the great thing about healthcare is that it's a, it's a, while there's plenty of inequity in healthcare because of the way our systems are financed and run, at the end of the day, like when you work at a hospital system like WakeMed, you see everybody, yeah. you know, in a given day, you're going to go from top to bottom socioeconomic and see everybody in between. And that's WakeMed's mission. And, and it really is a great equalizer. And in my, you know, that this is kind of why, what drives a lot of my uh, passion around this technology in healthcare is that You've got a ready-made reason to serve everybody, and you've got the potential to actually build a business model that will actually work mm-hmm. um, without excluding people while while creating you know access to healthcare services. To me, it's just kind of like a big win. Uh, it won't be easy, but but it 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 provides a significant amount of focus <laughs> uh, yeah. when you're when you're building systems.
0: So part part of what oh sorry, I was going to say I was just. Along those same lines, um, you know, the, the story of value and dollars, right? Unfortunately, a lot of us see the value, right, um, to people, to accessibility, you know, all the good things. But we always have that question is, all right, wh- the dollar, what's the dollar impact here? What's the cost impact here? What's the added value using dollars as the, the, uh, you know, the main focus, uh, unfortunately it's real, it's reality in aviation definitely. Um, and how does that look in healthcare? What's that subject or what's that topic like when you discuss that?
3: Uh, healthcare is a total mess. So, so I mean, you know, finding essentially the, the issues of finance and how we pay for healthcare and what it costs, you know, I'm by no means the, uh, by no means the expert or a healthcare economist, but suffice it to say that there's a lot of shifting around of, of money and a lot of it's artificial and we finance healthcare uh, through systems that some, in some ways make no sense and exclude certain people. And the fact that it's financed through insurance is the reason it's expensive mm-hmm. And the reason is we have to finance it is because it's so expensive. So there's like a there's a there's a very unvirtuous circle in terms of healthcare economics at play, and, and we all kind of know that. I guess I guess on the upside, because it's such a human thing, I, the, the people who practice medicine typically don't, especially in a big system like ours, don't want to think about that stuff. They just want to they just want to contact patients. They right. just want to do their jobs, mm-hmm. and so that's a bit of an equalizer. Now, obviously, you have to live in the real world and <laughs> and figure out and figure out how whether or not you can sustain you know sustain your your healthcare business. Uh, but there, I guess, the upside of the complex draconian finance financial system that that sort of props up healthcare is that it does result in opportunities for subsidies. You know, like essentially, we you know uh, profitable services in healthcare end up subsidizing money losers, like, like emergency ER care and things like that. So, I mean, I, you know, because of all the obfuscation and, and sort of finance, it, there's opportunities to sort of leverage that, you know, and, and just make sure you're delivering the care you need to, to deliver. That's something we grapple with all the time. Right. The, the ups, the other upside is that value it has a different meaning on the ground than healthcare. I mean, even healthcare administrators who obviously have to think about the bottom line and should, uh, you know, they are often motivated just by better care. I mean, the drone system at WakeMed is a good example. This is obviously an extra cost for WakeMed to operate, not a big one, uh, but it's certainly not like some scaled system that saves money. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't even ask those questions. They wanted to know, our, our administrators wanted to know, is there a chance this will improve lab turnaround and patient care? And... Uh, make us rethink how we build our system. So there are interesting questions about the definition of value in healthcare, And, and in some ways that's virtuous. Excellent.
1: So, so this has been totally fascinating conversation. And I think we could probably keep chatting for another hour, <laughs> but I did want to ask you a question about, um, you know, you, you have family and you're, you're essentially a teacher. Um, and so how, how do we continue to push some of these, not just the initiatives and the conversation, but some of our actions and policies to the next generation, right? I mean, uh, uh, all of you have kids. I don't, but that it's a really important part of the goal of our podcast is to influence the next generation. And, and would love to hear your thoughts um um, to kind of end the segment with, uh, you know, how do we, to empower the next generation to think big, to innovate, to fly, and be a medical doctor at the same time?
3: <laughs> you have to be very patient and have a tolerant wife. Um, no, so that's a great question, Chris. I mean, I you know, in my job, one of the other things we do is we get to train uh, resident physicians from University of North Carolina. And we spend... You know of their four years in subspecialty training and head and neck surgery, they spend in total about a year of it with us. We have a a significant opportunity to impact their their outlook on their careers and the way and the way they're going to shape their careers. and some of them want to be traditional sort of academic physicians and do research and sort of advanced science and that's all great and necessary. Some of them just want to go into private practice and and pay the bills and do a job they love and and have a direct impact on their community. And that's all great. Others really struggle. And I I think, I think this is a a great question because uh, it's not explicitly discussed a lot in healthcare because healthcare is a destination in most people's minds. I mean, you spend so much time just trying to get into medical school and then going through it all and going through your training. It takes a decade just to train and uh, it's easy to fall into the trap of, uh, thinking very linearly about your career. If there's anything that I believe in when it comes to this, it's I believe in lateral moves. If that's not completely obvious, <laughs> and that's my wife. She, we've changed careers a couple times. We've made me. I'm a believer in this. Some of you may have read the book Range. Um, there's a concept about you know there's it's kind of a counterpoint to the classic 10,000 hours. To be an expert, it's something you have to pick a subject and then spend the rest of your life be, becoming excellent yeah. at it. Yeah. And probably, and this is anecdotally my experience, definitely not the case. The, the reason I feel like I think differently than some of my colleagues in healthcare is because of my experience at the airlines and the, and the transition I, I made and probably vice versa too. And I think that's just a, a matter of perspective. And, and I am very tolerant of uh, lateral moves and taking career risk. I think those things usually accrue to benefit for the person willing to take them. And the benefits in terms of just your ability to see things in a different way outside of the system you work in are incredibly valuable. And I, so I, I, I worry that people believe that they need to be on one track and go forward forever. And that's, that's probably not a good way to think about it. You want a diverse experience and you want to keep yourself interested. I mean, you should get bored a lot and then make a move when you get bored. If you don't, you, you'll you just stay bored. You know, I, I think this is a critical thing that kids need to teach, you know, need to learn. I try to teach my kids this, like my, the family value that I, I tell my wife, I want to impart the most on my two boys is just curiosity. Just don't, just never get bored. Just keep being curious. And I think that provides, you know, that applies professionally as well.
1: So, so, um, sidebar. It sounds like I need to talk to you about my next phase of my career. <laughs> yes. Oh, I am all about making, <laughs> having people make bad decisions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't mind making bad decisions. The problem is making a decision about certain things. Yeah. And I get yeah. bored very easily, so I have the same yeah. problem as you. Just uh, do um, your yeah.
0: voice acting so, with me, that's all.
1: Yes. I don't know. Based on the feedback, I don't think I have the voice. But... <laughs> um, I, so one of the things that I think I know I, I, I said wrap up, but I, I, the conversation is so great. We want to keep going. Um, one of the things that we touched on early on in the conversation was the lack of diversity in, in aviation. And, and obviously, we want to promote that through our efforts. Um, how, have, how does it compare in the health industry, healthcare industry? and are you kind of putting on the spot here are you kind of focused on that um in terms of bringing bringing people of other ethnicities um and and skin colors uh based on performance and and obviously education up uh into that into that group that you've you, you're in, and and how do you go about that conversation? How do you go about the thought process? What is what is the conversation you have with within yourself, with your with your colleagues, and with your family?
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question. So we, so in some ways, we're lucky in healthcare. Now, I'm sure that if you take a thirty thousand foot view of the healthcare system, that like a lot of other industries, it's it certainly doesn't reflect the <laughs> the general population. But I do think it's as a, as a very, very large system, probably well on its way, I'll tell you that more specifically in my particular training and current job, I've been frequently the minority as sort of, oh, a, wow. I mean, I'm, wow. I'm a pretty white dude, right? So, I mean, I'm a kid from North Carolina. <laughs> I'm Irish, you know, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that counts. <laughs> probably not. Uh, probably not. But, um, but no, you know, um, you know, when I was, I mean, obviously when I went, the, and the, the eye-opening experience to me, well, Wake Forest was already pretty diverse, as a, you know, the medical school, both in terms of gender equality and and sort of racial representation, but not enough, you know. And and they are very deliberate. And Like I think I think so in terms of solutions, I think you alluded to it, Chris. It's just about being deliberate. You actually have to really value. Remember, we just talked about range and different perspectives. If you don't see it as an imperative for being uh, really innovative and really better at what you do as a company, as an organization, then you're probably not going to get there. I, you have to genuinely understand that it's a source of power to have uh, diverse viewpoints and backgrounds represented because it'll make everybody better. And I really don't just mean that as a soundbite. I think most people who've worked in a complex environment like that understand that intuitively, but you still have to be very deliberate. And I, you know, Stanford uh, was not really the real world. I mean, at Stanford, I was. I was by far the minority in my my group of trainees. You know, my group of 20 trainees. It was more than 50% women, and you know, it's it's West Coast, man. White 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 kids were, you know, I I was not well represented in my program, and that was great. Um, Most of the kids were from California and the West Coast, and that's just the way it was. And so they're very deliberate about it. They also have an incredible group of uh, applicants to choose from at Stanford. So again, it's kind of not the real world. In our current job, yeah, we can say without. Uh, you know, we're in the process of, of, of making those moves. We've started, we've, you know, our most recent hire in my group was an Indian woman. Now we trained her. She's incredible. Uh, She's one of the best facial plastic surgeons I've ever seen. It wasn't exactly a hard decision, you know? Um, But I think it is important that you, you have to be just deliberate and somewhat systematic about it. It's, it's not hard to find really great people. If you're just looking, you just have to look. But but that's the
1: thing, right? I mean, that's the thing. You have to be deliberate. You have to be purposeful. And you have to kind of open yourselves to having a process that's inclusive. And ultimately, the best man or woman should win out. And if that man or woman is white or black or brown, you're the best person got the job. But the problem is that the, the networks and the this and the that work in the favor of and and we want to make sure that we're talking about white domination now we want to make sure we put in a system that 20 30 years from now doesn't flip and suddenly it's 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 you know the other side where people who look like Ravi and me and and darker skin color are doing the same thing right um yeah. and, and 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 so that is as as much as we invest in innovation and all these new technologies that improve the bottom line of, of healthcare systems and companies, we need to invest in people and the care of our own people. And, and that is something that, you know, I appreciate you bringing up and, and we are passionate about. And we want to continue to promote through the podcast and through our networks is, you know, yeah, we want to win. We want to do cool things. But if you're gonna leave people behind, no, they're we not we're not part of that I situation. Want, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I just wanna know if you were a Stanford tree mascot during the games, but uh, sorry. No, no <laughs> not quite. No, not
3: quite. I'm a Virginia fan, man. Um, <laughs> no, but um no, that's a that's a great point. You know, like we I really do think it comes down to you have to you have to re- I mean, healthcare in some ways is a great equalizer because day to day, like I said, you're it's it's a very human I mean, the politics is you know in this last year as our politics has gotten so polarized, being at work is like a warm blanket because you see you see everybody in a single day, and I mean literally everybody from every spectrum of society, every race, color, creed, they come through your door and and you see them and work with them on the human level, and you just realize very quickly everybody is pretty much has the same or similar you know needs and. They just want their problem solved, and we're all, you know, you're all kind. It, it changes your perspective, I think, a little bit in in ways. And then I think the second thing is, Chris, is like you you got to believe that. I think you have to have an understanding that that becomes a competitive advantage. You know, like if you're if you're trying to build, say, you're trying to build a business, and you understand that having a fundamentally diverse, wide-ranging group of people who are going to call into question some of the things you're doing over time is going to be productive. <laughs> Yeah, and it sounds cold hearted, but you've got to sort of believe in that idea. I yeah. think okay. it, has yeah. be, it has to be—it has to be real.
1: Yeah, yeah. We, we need to close the the deficit yep. that we have in empathy, um, but also we need to get get to the point where we're we're solving the problem at hand, not solving the problem at hand based
3: on your skin color or your gender. Right. Yeah. Well, if you want that kind of work, healthcare is the place to be because it's just. It's just your face with it every day. See, and you this is why
1: you yeah. and I need to talk because I feel like I'm going to change careers here. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> he's he's going into the healthcare.
2: <laughs> oh,
0: Doctor Fernando.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it, the so so Stewart. I mean, you obviously you can see why um, we we wanted to have Stuart on the podcast, but also uh, NASA, the Aeronautics Directorate Research Directorate, one invited. Um, Stuart and myself up to uh, up to DC to brief them. Actually, I was just tagging along with Stuart. But we were talking about what we we're doing. Um, we went up to talk to them about what we're doing around the IPP and kind of what we had planned for the future and kind of sharing the stories about drone delivery um, with the with the NASA folks, which was really a once-in-a-lifetime invitation. Very exciting for us. Anyhow, we flew up. It was just a day event. So we flew up and we get to the hotel and um so they're speaking. We didn't we had like another, I think, hour before our time to speak, and and Do- Stuart and I are in the in the lobby, and uh suddenly someone runs out of a room. They're having a conference downstairs, uh, out of the room says, Is there a doctor here? Is there a doctor? And I'm like, Oh, I yeah, there's a doctor. <laughs> uh, so I went over and found Stuart. I'm like, Stuart, they need a doctor. Um, like someone was having, oh I don't know, God. someone was having an issue. So, uh, you know, of course, Stuart pops up. He's like gets off a call. He's like, all right, I'm here. And he walks in. He's like, yep, <laughs> hey, I'm a doctor. And uh, and <laughs> proceeds to help a gentleman out um, that was, I, I don't know what was going on. So we get invited to D.C. to speak <laughs> to NASA and, and Dr. Kin right into action before we went up. And then after that, he, you know, pre- performed flawlessly. In front of the the NASA group, as we explain what we're doing in, in North Carolina, so that's I awesome. For, I
3: forgot that it's it's, it's 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 all been downhill downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta tell people. Oh I my god, we, was, need to, we need to. Just like, I I got to this guy. He was like taking a nap. I think they got like my a map. And I, I said that, that in the meeting. <laughs> it was. I wasn't doing just compressions or anything. I didn't do the George Clooney so, where I took a pen and like crammed yeah. it in. <laughs> yeah. Should have. Should we, have. We, Nobody we, would have questioned We definitely me. need to
1: come up with a Dr. Drone, Dr. Ginn <laughs> situation yeah. where we, I mean, I'm thinking we get Mr. Hollywood here to to create a scenario. <laughs> Because
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been riding indeed. Basil's coattails in this industry for three years now. At least. Do you guys
0: treat? Do you guys like uh, you know acknowledge each other as like doctor doctor?
3: No, I say that I've, I've called Basil Doctor Drone many times. To his face. Yeah, I tried. He's like, give I me don't... that,
0: give me that doctor's coat.
3: Damn it. <laughs> That's right.
2: I went out. I, I I bought a white coat just for some of the stuff we're doing with NCDT. I had to go buy one. I wasn't given one. I didn't That's earn awesome. mine. From years and years of toil. Uh so Stuart, we usually like to to wrap up with uh just kind of a fun question, wrap up on a good note. So um I think the question we had uh tonight for the group was what is your what is your go-to show or movie when it's like, hey, I gotta, you know, feel good or you you want to watch a show or movie to kind of get you out of a bad mood. What's your whether it's comedy or feel good story, etc., what's your go-to show or movie
3: yeah Seinfeld so (laughs) Seinfeld I've seen every episode of Seinfeld so many times that now I will and I'm not exaggerating I put it on at bed when I go to sleep it puts me to sleep it's like a blanket that and I love uh Arrested Development I don't know if you know I love Arrested Development so those are my two if I really want to laugh I'll watch Arrested Development but uh Seinfeld you're in good company you're in good company do you guys have to answer the same question or do you already
2: know your, yeah. your, your, your answers? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll go next. I, yeah, I, Arrested Development, I think I've watched that five or six times now, the entire, all of the seasons over. So yeah, that's our go-to, um, go-to funny show. And then my go-to movie, I think that's just a good, uh, movie is Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, that's a good one. Um,
1: what? Oh wow. That, I yeah. did not expect that. Okay. What? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, that movie is hilarious. It Um, is, it is.
1: But I did not expect that from you.
2: And it's got good music, too. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you, Chris. It's
2: funny.
1: I'm going to take that as a compliment that you're like, wow, he's got good good taste. No, you've got like all this very intellectual. Even your podcast taste is... I make myself like, man, I need to like read like smarter <laughs> books and um, you make me feel very small. Meanwhile, meanwhile so. he's
0: at home watching He-Man and She-Ra. So.
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and he's like you tall. I'm like, oh, okay. Basil's watching tall. So. Oh, Classic. classic. <laughs> How about you, Chris? Ah, man. Um... I don't know. I want to see. I want to hear what Robbie has to say. Oh yeah, I go. sure. Because no I feel like the last time I went first, and I I kind of regretted it. That that little. Bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so mine's mine's pretty easy. The Office. I rewatched the entire season during COVID, and then watching it again, I could watch any single episode, any scene, any time. You know, I agree with Seinfeld, but those two shows, yeah. But Office puts me in such a good mood. I mean, yeah, you know, I quote. Office on text quite often. So, pretty much one of the one line, pretty much. But, uh, uh, movie, it's a documentary about this uh, amazing, amazing athlete who's a sports hero to many. Uh, his name's Rocky Balboa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, Philly, the Philly boy. Yeah. Uh, hey, he's real, man. He's real. All the movies, they, all the movies, except for Rocky Five. Yeah, Rocky Five was uh, a <laughs> uh, awful movie. But the rest of the movies are great, Oscar worthy. That's yeah, awesome. That's
3: a good one. That's a good one. And I agree with The Office. Objectively, The Office is a better show than Seinfeld. I mean, I'll admit it. It, it is an incre- It's nearly a perfect show. It's, I mean, yeah, it's incredible.
0: If they could just have an, a but, channel yeah. of just Office and or just The Office and just Seinfeld yeah. twenty four hours a day. Simpsons, yeah. they have that. I mean, that's another third. Yeah,
3: Simpsons is good stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah, There
0: you go, Chris. Um,
1: since we have a doctor on the show, like, I love movies with, um, uh, not movies, TV shows with any premise, like, premise with, you know, medical. Um, yeah. I loved House and all of those shows. Only because I think Mash. my parents. Doogie Howser. Yeah, Mash. Doogie Howser. <laughs> I, I actually just started watching Doogie Howser. Um, oh, man. And Trapper I John like, MD. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> but only because like if you come from a south asian background like they want you to be an engineer a doctor a lawyer of course and when i said i want to be a pilot they're just like what a pilot like you should go be a doctor lawyer or engineer so maybe that is like subconsciously what i wanted to kind of you know i'm trying to fill the gap so i would say it's hard because I love, like, House. I think House is probably one of my favorite shows. I've watched it because wow. his analytical capabilities and his horrible people skills and, yeah. and just, like, the <laughs> way he just, like, it, it reminds me of some of my jobs, to be honest. So yeah. I, I think House is is probably, and I've watched it multiple times, so that that's an indication. In terms of movies, um, I'm caught in between... Like the Indiana Jones series Ugh. and and um, Star Wars.
3: Oh, the reason
1: Wars. is both of them. Like, So, when I watched Star Wars the first time, I was in a cold basement in Ohio and I was like eight. Um, and I remember it being scared. I, I, I watched Return of the Jedi and I was scared out of my life. Um, <laughs> so, that has stuck in my head and I love Star Wars. Uh, and then. Uh, Indiana Jones um, Temple of the Doom is in Set in Sri Lanka, where I'm yeah. from. So, like, so I have, and I love that kind of adventurous spirit. So, I think I, that's a tie for me.
3: Yeah, that's good Which, stuff. I mean, Star Wars, I'm definitely a Star Wars kid, movies wise. I mean, there's no question. i would born and raised on that stuff. And actually, somebody mentioned MASH. If you've never seen the original Robert Altman movie, oh, it's great. Gosh, Oh my god, it's so great! It's amazing. And it, 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 as a surgeon, it's one of my favorite, definitely one of my favorite movies. It's I watched it two weeks ago. I, I watched it a couple times a year. It's just fantastic. And it's got in it's got uh, Tom Skerritt. I mean, it's got Viper in it. For sake. oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Don't forget.
2: Which Star Wars is your favorite, uh, Chris? Which.
3: So I think I'm
2: biased.
1: One? Don't say George R. <laughs>
0: no, <laughs> don't say George R.
1: <Jar> <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's it has to be Return of the Jedi just because that's a one that just like is scarred into my brain. As as, as. Was, But I, I mean, I watch all of them and I love love this. Was story. it
0: the father son story that really got to you? The Luke, I'm your father. <laughs>
1: Doc <Dark> made <laughs> just scared the be genius out of me. <laughs> it's good. It's supposed to. Yeah. I mean, you know, because you could tell who he was. You know, he he's he just like a badass dude. I just loved it. I don't know. Yeah. And I think being in a cold dude. basement in Ohio kind of scared me, too. <laughs> Hopefully our friend Fred, Fred Fred, is listening in and, and you know, <laughs> comparing you know, those. It, it's really cold <laughs> in, in Ohio, Fred.
2: All right, with that, we're rolling the outro. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast, No U-Turn, hosted by Chris Fernando, Robbie Singh and me, Basil Yap. We have help from Abby Joyner who edits our podcast and our artwork was designed by Terry Ann Fernando at On Point Design. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at No U-Turn underscore podcast. There we post pictures from our stories and you can leave us feedback. If you want to connect with us professionally, search No U-Turn Podcast on LinkedIn and you'll find us there. You can find this and other episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please leave us a review. Until next time, keep it on the center line.